Welcome to Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast, the show where we seek to uncover what leadership means in today's world. I'm Joe Hart, CEO of Dale Carnegie, and we will be talking to diverse leaders with stories to tell across various industries to help unlock your potential for success. We will be sharing real-life insights into leadership, which in turn can help spark the next level of your growth as a leader. In today's episode, we have a special guest for our end of year and holiday edition of Take Command. She is the daughter of one of the best known authors ever, who is also the founder of our company, Dale Carnegie. In 2022, she took the initiative to refresh her father's timeless bestseller, How to Win Friends and Influence People, alongside Simon & Schuster author, Andrew Postman, by adding, editing, and updating this masterpiece. We are pleased to welcome the chairwoman of the board of directors of Dale Carnegie and Associates, Donna Dale Carnegie. This episode features an interview conversation that took place at Dale Carnegie's 73rd International Convention in New York City in October. Dale Carnegie's Chief Operating Officer and Chief Marketing Officer, Christine Buscarino, interviewed Donna Dale Carnegie and Andrew Postman, who co-authored the first update of the book since 1981. Hear the -the behind-the-scenes story of what it was like to refresh a best-selling book that has changed the lives of millions of people around the world. Hi again, everyone. Since 1936, we have celebrated the award-winning bestseller, How to Win Friends and Influence People, written by our founder, Dale Carnegie. A lot has changed since 1936. Some of us were here, some of us maybe weren't. (laughs) Society has changed, but what hasn't changed is the impact that this book, Dale's Principles, and what you do every day have had on the world. Maybe some of the stories, people don't know the names anymore. Maybe some of the things in society have changed the way we use words and have changed cultures. Society is different. But there are countless numbers of individuals who have had a breakthrough because of one book. The book has helped us to make conversations a little easier, negotiate a little better, find a way to feel comfortable in networking situations. The examples go on. You know them better than me. The last time the book was updated was 1981. I've had the privilege and honor to be part of watching two amazing people keep what Dale did alive in this latest edition. But I have to personally say the magic that I witnessed happen between these two individuals to bring the latest version that launched in May to the bookstores. Right? We all got a copy signed by Donna the other night. I just want to say thank you for allowing me to be part of that and witnessing magic happen once again. I'd like to welcome to the stage Donna Carnegie and Andrew Postman. Welcome, both of you. Thank you so much for being here. And we'll introduce Andrew in a second, because Andrew had a really special role in helping Donna and the team really put this amazing book together. What I witnessed between the two of you putting together the latest edition, like I said, was truly magic. The book reads as if Dale wrote it. Donna, you have an amazing talent 
to recognize both what's important today and what's important from history and really made sure that the book came together to ensure really what's special about it remain. Andrew, as a writer, I remember being so impressed when I first met you. And you had a personal story you said to me about why this book was so important for you to be part of. So if it's okay, before we get into that conversation, I'd love for you to tell us why this was so special to you. That story was profound and it made an impact on me. Sure, I got an email from my agent asking would I like to help update how to win friends and influence people. And I thought it was a joke. <laughs> it's like, I want you to just write, are you kidding me? And if you talk about getting to yes immediately, um, not only did I think it was an honor and very cool to be involved, but I had read the book. I'd read it twice. I thought it was a great book. I had bought copies for my young sons. My daughter wasn't born yet. I thought it was that profound. So the idea to be in any way associated with it really meant a lot to me, not just because of its iconic status, but I, I think it's, as we all do, an incredible book and its durability as much as any other quality is what proves that. So I was very honored to be involved. Thank you. So Donna, as you and Andrew worked together to really set the objectives mm -hmm. for what we wanted the latest edition to do, can you talk about how you both came together to think through what's the way to do this? Should we look at every page? Should we look for new stories? What was your strategy and how did you both work together to ultimately come to a place where we could attack this and make it as great as it is today? I guess to start with, we had to choose a writer. And Simon and Schuster gave us, you know, several options. I said, well, why doesn't each person write, you know, a few paragraphs or revise a short chapter and let's see how they look. And they were all good, but Andrew, I felt, captured my father's voice. It was like he wrote it. I go, he's the guy. And so then we met, you know, online by Zoom, I believe. It worked right away, you know. I felt very comfortable with him, and obviously he's very talented. So we decided together that the best thing to do, rather than try to revise the revision, is to start from scratch, go back to the absolute original edition when it came out. I got a first edition that you sent me, and go through it page by page and decide what worked, what didn't, what needed tweaking. We also decided that the 81 edition really kind of ventured into trying to make it too modern by bringing in you know, contemporary examples, and it just didn't flow well. So we wanted to go back and find stories to replace those that you know, were from my father's writings. So I delved into the archives and found stuff that he had done in interviews and short biographies. And so I'd run it by Andrew, and we'd discuss it, and had many discussions on what to keep, what not to keep, and we'd have little arguments, and mm -hmm. I'd say, all right, you can have that one if I can have this one. <laughs> <laughs> and then we would each rewrite, you know, whatever it was, if, well, this story can be rehabilitated, and we wanted to do it as close to my father's voice as possible. Then we'd exchange notes again. But I think that we went through something like 
eight or nine revisions. We'd go through a page at a time, I'd read it all, and I'd go, okay, that's done. And then the next week, here's another box. We have to do it again and again and again. And finally, at the end, I go, we're done. And then I get the box again, and it's where to put the commas. You know, or should we capitalize this, or capitalize that, or you know, leave in parentheses. So it was quite a project, but it was a joy working with Andrew. We had a lot of fun. Well, that's very kind of you. I would say, even if I was able to approximate Dale's voice, no one writes like Dale, except for Dale, more than Donna, and really, truly yeah. channels her father and brought such intelligence to the new material that we added. As Donna says, there is kind of a paradox. On the one hand, we were told, and I think we all believe, because the book is so great, to use a light editorial pen. On the other hand, you want to at least examine everything that's there. And for instance, I think the biggest thing that we all felt is there was a lack of representation of women in positions of not just power, but decision-making where they weren't mothers, wives, secretaries, domestics, as they were referred to in 1936. On the other hand, you want to be sensitive to the fact that the world that Dale, if I may call him by his first name, was writing in didn't have, unfortunately, that world, yet we had to be sensitive to new readers in 2022. There were phrases, there was language. I remember we talked about when Dale says, fooey bear oil. <laughs> and, well, do we update what seems like an archaic expression and say hogwash? Is that really better? Or do we have enough respect for readers that they will get it, they will appreciate it? There's a point where Dale writes, if you really like your filet mignon at Delmonico's, make sure to say something nice to the chef. And we felt maybe we need to make this a little more inclusive. Not about the meat eating, by the way, but... So there were all these sensitivities, and I think one thing that I really appreciated about Donna being the steward of this great work is, in the end, the tie goes to the runner, which is to say, let's keep it the way it is, <laughs> and yet feel as if we scrutinized it and we felt less is better, even though we made a number of significant changes. That's great, and I did witness that amazing talent that you talk about that both Dale had and Donna you have. So watching just that come to life and the understanding of the intent of every story and the uncovery of all the new stories that were found was truly remarkable. I think what was so interesting though was looking at the previous revisions and there was a reason we went back to the original, right? Mm -hmm. In the 1981 version, there was a little bit of story stacking. Mm -hmm. So you could almost tell there was some editing and some of the stories didn't feel timeless. They felt like they were very relevant for 1980. So a big part of what I know you worked through was to weave in even stories that were back from the 1930s that don't sound like they're from the 1930s. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that, just the ability to take what truly was Dale's work and an interview he did and have it come across as if it could be affecting any of us today. Well, going back to the original edition, we realized that a lot of things had been cut in the 81 edition that really shouldn't have been. And one of them was a wonderful story about Mrs. Druckenberg. 
and a salesman wants to sell her electricity in a rural area. She's, you know, Amish, and so they generally didn't buy things like that. But during the course of the conversation, he notices that she has chickens and sells eggs. And so as they got talking about it, in the end, you know, he prevails. But it was a great story, and we had no idea why was this cut out. You know, this has to go back in. Even though it took place at a time when electricity was new, in the rural areas, there are still places in the world like that. And it really, I felt, illustrated the point. So that was really exciting to find. But we found others that had never been published, as far as I know, like the ones from radio interviews. If they worked in, that was great. So these are really Dale's stories. And we noticed in the 81 edition, as Christine said, that you'd go through a chapter and there was story after story after story, but not much meat in between. So we started slashing, and when we'd look at one another and say, well, what's left? You know, this is a short chapter. But going back to the original book, we realized my father had very short chapters, you know, like two pages long. He said what he had to say and then got in and got out and didn't, you know, didn't belabor the point. And so I think that this edition kind of reflects that style. Christine was wonderful. She was our sounding board, you know? <laughs> Thank you. Yes, we also, Christine and Joe Hart and the editor at Simon Schuster, Stuart Roberts, it was mm -hmm. definitely a team effort and everyone had their opinions, very strong opinions. <laughs> yes. Joe and I, Joe and I went at it a couple of times <laughs> on, on whether we thought this story should stay or a couple of things I want to add to what Donna said. As a writer, you want to make sure that you don't ever get the reader stopping and thinking about what they're reading. I mean, you want them to think about what they're reading, but you don't want them outside of the process. And I'll give an example from the 1981 edition. I happen to really like the Stevie Wonder story. There's a problem with it, though. You want to have this subtle idea that Dale Carnegie has written all of the words in it from 1936 to 2022. And when you read the 1981 version, even though it's a good story, you're thinking, wait a second. Stevie Wonder came to the world's attention when he was, I think, 13. He had a number one hit, and that was in 1961 or 62. And Dale Carnegie had passed away by then. How is his story there? There is a timeless quality, I think, to the 1936 version mm -hmm. that we were trying to restore to this one. And in fact, as Donna says, she discovered in the archives, there's a great story that comes from an interview that Dale did with Evangeline Booth, who was the Salvation Army president. And again, we always were looking, let's add more stories with women who are embodying the principles. And it's a story that he himself wrote. Donna did great rewriting to make it in the Dale Carnegie voice. But we didn't look at it and think, should we add an 85-year-old story to a new book? It was more, this is in the spirit of what the book was and should always be. Yeah, and I think that's what makes it special, right? And helps all of us to really use this as a tool ongoing, right? Another edition, I'm sure, in the future will come. But I think we've got something now that really positions us as the book originally did in 1936 and will last us another lifetime to really continue to make an impact on people across the world. Before we finish, you know, I'm sure everybody would love to listen to us for 
another 15, 20 minutes, but somebody in the back will yell at me if I do that. Just please share the piece that you're most proud of, not necessarily just from this edit, but from what the book has done for everybody in this room and what we hope that it continues to do for the rest of the people around the world. Dale himself says that these principles he didn't come up with. As Donna and I have talked about, and many people know, the second reason this book is so great is because of the way he organized it. The number one reason I think it's so great is because he's such a storyteller. And when Donna talks about story stacking, again, in the maybe 1981 version, our goal, my goal, and together as a team was to make sure his incredible pacing, his understanding of detail, of being so human in bringing these principles to life, that's why it is what it is. And you hear the word story, storytelling, the power of story thrown around so much now in advertising, in marketing, in PR, all of these places. And I don't think anyone has yet done it better, in my opinion, than Dale Carnegie. Thank you. Do you want to add anything, Donna? I can't or? follow that, what he said. <laughs> well, Donna, I want to thank you on behalf of everybody here for continuing to support everyone in this room with another great edition of this book and giving us all the opportunity to continue to be here and impacting the amount of people that we do today. So thank you from all of us. And Andrew, thank you for being part of this. You guys have created another piece of magic that we're all proud of. So thank you. Thank you. Please stay with us for a special segment of Leadership Insights from some of our previous Take Command guests, Katie Dill, Keith Ferrazzi, and Marshall Goldsmith, who read How to Win Friends at a Young Age. The success stories of these leaders are also featured in the new book, Take Command, co-authored by Michael Crom, Dale Carnegie board member, and myself. And now, Katie Dill. You know, I think that another lesson from that book, and why I've had to read that book three times because I'm not exactly great at this piece, is... If somebody else represents your idea or somebody else, like maybe they say it wrong and your gut is you want to correct them. That certainly is my gut. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, I think Dale Carnegie talked about what is the benefit of that? You call them out, you make them feel awkward. And is anything better off? Are you better suited now? Or are they in a, you know, any more likely to work in the direction that you were hoping they would? And so I think there were those kind of lessons in my mind of calling them out in the room and telling them, like, you got that wrong and, like, trying to, like, fight this little detail and that little detail certainly wasn't going to make them more open to my leadership style. It probably would have put more friction in the room and been far less effective in me being able to turn things around. Was that hard for you to do, though, Katie? <laughs> yes. I definitely was sitting there. I'm sure my blood pressure was rising. And yeah, it was tough. I'll leave it there. But the reasons to not want to hear it were definitely in my mind, but it wasn't going to help. And the theme of those things was that I didn't earn their trust before coming in and trying to make change. So they were saying things like, you know, you're critiquing our work and you don't really know, like, you know, what we're trying to do or you don't know our skills. And they had a personal view of it. But if, you know, you zoom out and you look at it and it's like, oh, yeah, they don't even really know who I am. They don't know what I can do or what I'm capable of. They don't know how well I know them and that I even care about them or that I understand what they're trying to do or that I value what they've done before. So 
as hurtful as that occasion was, and certainly was probably the scariest moment of my leadership career, it was an unbelievably powerful learning moment. I think, you know, in the end of the day, they were right. And I came in swinging, and I should have come in listening and really trying to understand them. And then once then, I would be able to make change with them with me by my side, as opposed to change to them. That was a rough moment, but it definitely helped me course correct quite quickly. And so we made some changes. I started to like, you know, just spend better one-on-one time talking to them, learning about them. And we actually went from having the worst engagement scores in the company just before I got there to the best engagement scores, like one of the you know, surveys the company does. So honestly, just like showing care and listening was pretty fundamental in a, a shift to how to better lead a team. And so when I later left Airbnb and came to Lyft, uh, you could be damn sure I did it right that time and came in listening. Well, it's a great thing, too, that you were receptive to the feedback, right? Because you could have been defensive. You could have been self-righteous about it. And it sounds like it would have had a completely different result. One of the things Dale Carnegie talks about is if you're wrong, admit it. It sounds like you were able to look inside and see some areas where you were wrong, admit it, and to pivot from that. So it sounds like a great result. And now, Keith Ferrazzi. Dale Carnegie was one of the greatest influences in my young life. My father gave me that book when I was probably 10, and it was an influence on his life as well. But when I show up in any meeting, I'm prepared with five packets of generosity. Now, that means that before the meeting, I really thought about it and I've said, what are five things that I can do that would be really generous to this individual meeting? By the way, I could tell you did that, Joe. Number one, you showed your admiration for the work that I had done. I deeply appreciate that. Thank you. You also did your homework. You had read, you watched podcasts, you've done things that I've done. That's a big deal. Showing up, I've got people who've never read my book and want my advice. I'm like... I've written five books. And if you want my advice, why don't you start there? When that's exhausted your capacity to get advice from me, you show with a contextualized question said, so I've read these books and here's what I've taken out of them. But I'm really curious about that. I haven't been able to figure out from your books is X. I'm like, that's interesting. Because then you've actually shown me something that I still need to communicate to people, right? And that's even a benefit to me. You can be congenial. You can be, you know, a charismatic individual. And that in and of itself, you know, is an act of generosity. Or as I said, you can research where you can add value to a person, right? Those are the things that really are the level of generosity I'm suggesting. Vulnerability, that's not something you share, right? I have this analogy that a good productive relationship is one that's also caring of each other. Two people, they're in a productive relationship, they care for each other. And that care for each other needs to be, if you're in joining a new relationship with somebody, you can accelerate it. You can make it happen faster by growing the care. Now, if I show up and all we talk about is business and all we talk about is what I can do for you, what you can do for me, that's very transactional. There's not much caring in that. If we show up and we start talking about our struggles, past struggles is an easy thing to talk about, right? That's an easy level of vulnerability that creates empathy. Empathy is the bridge that goes from a transactional relationship to a caring relationship, empathy. And there's this gate, right? There's this gate and this golden key that opens to this bridge of empathy and it's called vulnerability. You gotta be vulnerable and authentic in order to cross that empathy bridge to get to a good relationship. 
And now, Marshall Goldsmith. The first thing in Dale Carnegie I like is you don't believe people are hardwired. You do believe people can change. That's a key component of Dale Carnegie. Absolutely. Is. And we change attitudes and mindsets as well. Yep. Anybody that does not have an incurable genetic defect can get better. A couple points in the book I'll talk about. The first one is called the every breath paradigm. So I'm a, not a religious, but a philosophical Buddhist. And Buddha said, every time I take a deep breath, it's a new me. Well, that's a key point of the book is we live in a world of impermanence. You take a breath, you're starting over again in life. And the idea of that every breath thing is very helpful. It's a new me. It's a new me. It's a new me. As we go through life, we're always starting over. And you can look at the previous renditions of you as the previous you's. And one thing I love about Dale Carnegie is you teach people, don't stereotype yourself. You know, don't say, I'm no good at. That's just the way I am. Well, that indicates they can't change. We can all change. You know that. And so very important to say, every time I take a breath, it's a new me. And I get a chance to start over. And what's healthy about that is, number one, you're much better at forgiving yourself for previous sins. That was a previous renditions of you, and they made some mistakes. And the other thing, though, is you don't live in the past. You don't sit there and talk about the football game you won 30 years ago. You don't live in the past. You live in the future. So that's a big part of the book. The other part of the book talks about the connection. The part that's really had the most impact on people is a connection between our aspirations, our ambitions, and our actions. Our aspirations are the deeper purpose, the higher meaning. Why are we here? What's it all for? And our aspirations don't have a timeline. Our ambitions are achievement of goals, which do have a timeline. And then our actions are day-to-day activities. They're immediate now. And really, assuming you have middle-class income, assuming that you're healthy and assuming you have good relationship with people you love, if you have a good sense of purpose in life, a deeper aspiration, two, your achievements are connected to that, and three, you love the process, you just won the game of life. And it's important to connect the three. One of my favorite parts of the book talks about the marshmallow study. Remember the marshmallow study? You take the kid, you give the kid a marshmallow, and you say to the kid, eat one, you get one, but wait, you get two. Well, allegedly, they did longitudinal studies, and the kid that eat one becomes a drug addict, and the kid that waits goes to Harvard and gets an MBA. I think they exaggerated a little bit, but the point of it is very clear. Delayed gratification is good. Over and over, delayed gratification is good. Workout, diet, delayed gratification is good. Well, in the book, I talk about it's sometimes good. See, what they didn't do in that research is they didn't take the kid that had two marshmallows, say, wait a bit longer, kid, three. Wait some more, four, five, 10, a thousand. Where do you end up? An old man waiting to die in a room surrounded by thousands of uneaten marshmallows. Sometimes you got to eat the marshmallows. <laughs> the updated version of How to Win Friends is available on Amazon and all major booksellers. The new Take Command book will be released on January 10th, 2023, and is now available for pre-order on Amazon. You can visit takecommandbook.io to purchase it. Visit dalecarnegie.com to learn more about Dale Carnegie, our mission, and our training courses. In addition, visit the new takecommand.com page, where we feature insights on Take Command, a Dale Carnegie book, and offer other valuable resources. 
Take Command is the modern day manual for your personal and professional growth. I hope you enjoyed this edition of Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast. Check out our resources page at www.dalecarnegie.com for more research, insight, and tools that will support your success in taking command of your leadership potential. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating it and subscribing to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, thank you for listening, and we look forward to you joining us for the next episode of Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast.